Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme this afternoon in what is a cool and cloudy autumn day here in the capital is Elizabeth Vega OBE. Elizabeth is the group CEO at Informed Solutions, a multi-award winning independent management, information systems and technology consulting firm. Um, Elizabeth, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you so much for joining us on the programme today. Thank you very much, Scott. It's absolutely a pleasure and I also appreciate the invitation. Yes, it's a pleasure having you on the airwaves with us as well, Elizabeth. So thank you ever so much for accepting. And before we get started, I believe a congratulations is in order. Recognised, of course, in the uh, the Queen's Honours uh, this month. Uh, could you remind me what um, it was uh, recognition for? Um, thank you very much, Scott. I think it was one of the most nerve-wracking things because, of course, it was the Queen's uh, birthday honours list, which mm. was normally in June. So to actually have known about it for some months is probably the hardest secret I've ever had to keep in my life. Um, yes, my um, my honour was for um, digital transformation and for supporting international mm. trade. So um, that's part of really um, how to modernise businesses, modernise particularly traditional industries, etc. And also uh, to help and support the ambitions of UK businesses to grow through international trade and exporting opportunities. So I feel very privileged being acknowledged in that way. Um, it's a fantastic um, award to uh, receive there, real and deserved recognition. And all of that, of course, is hugely important in the context of the here and now with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic ongoing, of course. And I think it is appropriate that we start our discussion on leadership from that angle, because it's proven to be such a significant challenge, hasn't it, for leaders within all walks of life. Um, but for yourself, Elizabeth, and Informed Solutions, just to what extent has the whole situation affected you and your operations this year? Uh, well, of course, as a services company, it's impacted ourselves, but also it's impacted our clients and those people that we are of service to. Um, as you may be aware, Scott, we, we deal in high-stake um, high industries and services, everything from the nuclear sector to transportation to the National Health Service. Uh, policing hub, we also um, help the National Police Chief Council run the National Policing Hub uh, and the Home Office Fire and Rescue Services. So, of course, the impact has been first on us, but, but also by, uh, by association, those clients of which we, we are service to and the communities that we serve. Um, I would say that really we're talking about three key areas of impact. The first one is on people. Mm. First and foremost is people. You are really, as a business, not able not able to follow through unless you have the ability really to rally and to create confidence and trust in the people that you work alongside. Uh, the second, of course, is the impact on our, um, our infrastructure. Um, uh, as consultants, we're accustomed to working co-located with clients globally, actually. Um, however, when you actually have every single business function, including very traditional functions, um, not being able to operate out of the office, then um, it creates completely different, um, completely different operating impacts. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've had to look at finance, we've had to look at everything from even front of house. So there's that side of it. 
Um, and that also means security. There were different security considerations as regards having a fully distributed um, model. And the third area is which whole way what the new normal looks like, our operating model moving forward. Um, not only sustaining uh, the business functions, but sustaining relationships and as professional innovators, how do you create that spark of innovation with people that aren't in the same offices and, and can't really um, benefit from the, um, from the, um, the dynamics of team, team sort of spirit? Skills development and leadership development is also quite a challenging problem mm. um, for us because, of course, we've not only had to onboard staff, but we've got to try to continue with the career progression. And, of course, productivity and quality. Everyone has faced so many challenging problems, whether it's childcare, age of parents, potentially health issues of their own. Um, and not least is actually our international trade. Um, you know, now that people are not as mobile, that you can't actually um, move people around, how the hell do you sustain international trade ambitions? So those are really the big impacts for us. Yes, yeah, certainly. And um, it seems as if the world has become a much bigger place when it comes to traveling around, doesn't it? But it seems to become a much smaller place in terms of being te- um, connected by means of technology, because we've now sort of moved toward a real transition to remote working out of necessity. And there's a huge debate now about whether this is one of those features of that lockdown period that could become a permanent part of the way that we do business in this country. Is that something that you can see being the case in future, or do you think that we will see the conventional office environment as we knew it returning in vogue? Because there are arguments for both sides of that, aren't there? There are indeed, and I think it's very, very much a personal experience in a particular situation. We've obviously had a chance to explore over the last, you know, eight or nine months what that new normal might very well look like. And there's a combination of efficiencies, for example, you know, having having traditional business infrastructure like offices, et cetera, um, and having um, having people, personal preferences, lifestyle preferences as to whether people really don't enjoy the commute or feel that they're able to better focus um, uh, whilst they have their own personal space. There are quite a number of moving parts to that, Scott, and I do feel that we just need to look at shaping and co-designing options that ideally fit as many different preferences as possible. Personally, I do think there will still be quite an element of office-based working, uh, pro- probably part-time. There are things that are very, very hard, and, and obviously we, we've been doing this for very many years. There are things that are very, very hard to sustain mm. when you have people who do not interact together. The human chemistry is very, very hard to replicate when you're looking at people on a screen. You can't read the body language. You can't see the nuances of things that when you're in the same room as each other, you're able to very intuitively pick up on. So certainly for skills development and leadership development, I think those things are best done in real life, in person, uh, particularly the brainstorming where you need to be able to interact together and not really have too many misunderstandings. You know, when someone, for example, talks over the top of someone else, if you're in the same room, you can see that nothing was intended. But when it happens, uh, when it happens a lot, for example, online, you know, people get very frustrated and it's so easy to have misunderstandings, etc. So I really do think that there will be a balance. But also I do see that there will be emerging roles, which can be done fully remotely. We are already working that way. Um, and then the reality, the business reality, will be that we need to look at not overly intrusive or invasive ways 
of overseeing those functions so that we can, as a business, sustain the productivity and the quality of, of, of the work that we need to undertake, whilst also respecting um, you know, the individual and not making it um, not making it uncomfortable or overly intrusive for them. So they are big questions that we've all got to work through. They are huge questions, absolutely. And I think you're very right. Sometimes there is no replicating that human social interaction that I think pre-pandemic we certainly did take for granted. Um, reflecting on this sort of last few months now, when we talk about leadership development, how would you describe your sort of own personal leadership model, which has helped chart a course through this last few months? Well, I think um, as a leader working in services, I, I have learned how to be adaptive over, over my career, really, because I, I need to lead my clients, but not in what might traditionally be, um, you know, a, a very autocratic way. So I, I have a three-tier three -tier approach. I call them three gears. Uh, I think the very traditional approach when you're working through a, a crisis or, or great deals of uncertainty and instability is a more traditional lead from the front really, you know, harness your, your experience, harness your um, your good communication skills and your ability to create a vision of what success looks like and lead people from the front because I think a lot of people are looking for leadership, inspired, compassionate leadership at a time like that because, of course, they're having to confront their own individual challenges and their own, and their own individual uh, circumstances, which I think everyone in the last year has, has struggled with. Um, and then I have the second gear, which is actually once you've got a, 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 a good picture of what success looks like and you feel that you're building some trust and confidence in the team, you have to work alongside your team. You shouldn't have to be carrying everybody along behind you. Work alongside your team to really understand how to make the best possible decisions and how to shape the best possible solutions. And in that case, I believe that that helps you harness the power of collective intelligence and it helps you to harness the power of that commitment. You know, sometimes when people overly rely on leading from the front, they look around and they realise that they don't have the commitment that they, they thought they might build. You really build commitment where you work alongside your people um, and you, you support them in that way. And then the third one, which I think is essential to make sustainable um, sustainable changes within a business and also to learn for the whole organisation to be adaptive, agile and flexible is to lead from the back. Once your people have got an, an idea of what they're, what they're aiming for, once they've actually built up some team spirit and team rapport and a shared sense of purpose and a shared sense of ambition, allow them to take the initiative to lead from the front. And, of course, that harnesses the power of empowerment um, and the belief and the conviction of the people that think, actually, we're part of the solution and we're part of the future. So I believe in a good leader being able to use all three years and not over-relying on the just lead from the front. It's a hugely important point, that, isn't it? Not necessarily leading from the front and doing everything yourself. You do have to empower others to, of course, get involved and in some cases find solutions for themselves because what we find that leadership is and indeed developing into leaders in itself is a continuous learning process, isn't it? We're never a finished article. We're constantly developing and constantly improving. And I think one thing that this pandemic has certainly taught us is there's always something new to learn. It's been a huge learning curve for all of us and a lot of it has been like going back to basics to our first days in business we've been learning new things looking at new income streams and we've been having to sort of get used to trial and error all over again and that's very important isn't it to remember that leadership and developing is all about learning curves and that there will be one or two mistakes along the way and we have to manage those correctly and embrace those as positive experiences. 
Well, I think um, that's a very, very interesting point, Scott, because it depends very much on organisational culture. Again, you know, uh, being a, a professional advisor, I try very quickly to gauge the gradient, uh, the rate at which an organisation can adapt. Now, we've lived through, we're living through unprecedented times, so the reality is we have no choice but learn together as we go. Um, but the, the the point about it really is that it's, it, you know, I don't believe in the fail fast. I don't believe that is a positive language. I believe in the learn fast. And I think people need to feel that there is support in a safe place for them to experiment and for them to explore, you know, what will work and what doesn't work. Um, and, you know, I, I have the concept of self-accountability rather than blame. You know, people need to accept accountability for, for the things that they're, they're being entrusted with. But at the same time, if it doesn't always go 100% right, you have to be supportive and say, hey, you know, we're all learning together. But certainly from, you know, the points that you're making about the acceleration, the rate at which we're having to adapt is completely unprecedented. And that's true for leaders as much as, you know, for, for, for people that are the followers. Um, and we have to try and do it together as well. So, yeah, a big challenge for all of us. It is, and it's going to take a lot of collaboration from leaders over the next few months, isn't it? And fortunately, it is something that has come about as a real positive from this whole pandemic situation. We've seen collaboration on such an unprecedented scale. We've seen leaders reaching out to each other and willing to learn from each other, share ideas. And I think one of the biggest examples of that, if you look at the pharmaceutical companies who are in their quest for a vaccine at the moment, they've been sharing intellectual property, which is something that's never happened before. So when we think about the future, it's this entrepreneurial spirit and this willingness to come together, which is really going to be important, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that is that is incredibly, um, incredibly insightful, Scott, because historically leaders have, have led silos within quite large enterprises. You know, you're, you're responsible for a particular function, uh, occasionally cross-function, but typically function. And you're incentivized, really, to make sure that your area performs. But we have had to learn for leaders to work together because the big problem is not just one discipline or one function uh, doing their bit. It's how uh, that cross-functional collaboration that uh, and the leaders, if they learn to collaborate together, of course, they're the role models for their people. So all of a sudden, you find those barriers and you find those obstacles to collaboration falling away because the top table is minded to collaborate and that sets the right example. Um, so it's, it's, it's time for us to put not just our egos to the door, at the door, uh, but also to, to leave our own individual targets and our own individual ambitions at the door because there are so many bigger problems in society, in the economy, in the environment, and we're not going to be able to solve them on our own. Uh, and I hope that that is sincerely a, a change in leadership, a fundamental shift in leadership culture. And I suppose for those leaders that are stepping up to the plate at the moment and doing an awful lot of inspiring and motivating just to keep things ticking over within their businesses, it's important for them to make sure that they safeguard their own mental well-being as well as that of those around them, isn't it? Because I suppose when you're sucked into the hectic world of running a business or an organisation, even when things are going well, it can be quite difficult and quite mentally taxing at the best of times, let alone when you are in a pandemic such as this and managing a crisis. So it is important also to remember that one has to take a step back sometimes and not necessarily switch off, but just take a moment to take stock as well. 
Absolutely. I think that's true of everyone, to be honest. I mean, certainly in leadership, you have a lot of people that you are responsible for, but I think everybody's got had to learn self-care um, and had to learn, you know, the appropriate, building appropriate coping mechanisms. Um, some of them are not always healthy. You know, we all like a glass of wine and, um, you know, et cetera. But, you know, when you have sustained pressure like we've had, we, we have had to learn some, some appropriate coping strategies that actually um, – Whilst they give a temporary release, they may not be good for our longer-term health. So um, in the company more broadly, and I'll come back and answer your question about my own, but I do think it's really worth highlighting that as a leader, you have a moral as well as um, an ethical and a legal obligation for the well-being of your staff. And um, we've got a very, very diverse workforce. We've got a lot of these very young people where we are the first job they've ever had. And to move them into a situation where they're academically quite talented, but to then move them into a professional capacity is a very, very big step for them. And some of them have genuinely struggled. So we've we've created a support system in the company um, where we've assigned them buddies. And we've also, um, as part of the um, as part of our commitment to our staff, uh, given them a hotline, which we have no knowledge of who is using it and for what purposes, but um, they, they are able to ring for professional support and referrals if they need it. Because as I said before, if your people are not in a good place, then your business is never going to stand a chance of, of really recovering. Um, as regards that, what that means for leaders and more particularly for myself, it is self-care. Um, I'm very mindful of my own uh, physical and mental well-being. I meditate, uh, I exercise, I, I try to eat well. It uh, doesn't mean I don't like a little glass of fizz every once in a while or a cocktail. Uh, I really try and get out and walk in nature. I think nature is incredibly grounding for you. Um, it almost like it's, it's oxygen, really. Um, and I use my colleagues. I mean, I have the privilege of a very stable leadership team, and I don't, I don't feel the need to pretend with them. You know, if I'm, if I'm really struggling with something and I'm not sure which end to grab, I'll say to them, "Hey, I'm not sure where to start on this one. Has any of you guys got any guys in the vernacular? Uh, but um, has, has anybody got any ideas? Of, you know, some ideas that we can kick around." And I don't feel the need to always pretend that I know everything or pretend that, again, to lead from the front all the time. It goes it goes to that second gear of work alongside each other to, to make the best possible decisions. And therefore, that actually reflects very directly on your own well-being and your own self-care. Um, and so far, that's working quite well for me, though. Having said that, I'd love to take a holiday. <laughs> Who knows when we'll be able to take holidays again, because it is very, very difficult, isn't it, to look too far into the uh, the future, because things change now at such a quick pace that we can't look months and years ahead. We now can look only days and weeks at best, really, maybe a month or so if you're lucky. And um, that's sort of why in the business world we've seen as you mentioned already that we've been sucked into this routine of having to be adaptable um, as well as of course being as proactive as we possibly can because we have to be ready for these changes as and when they do come and we can expect a lot more of that over the course of the year the next 12 months I think that is for sure and I would like to focus on that period of time in just a little bit more detail Elizabeth just before we do wrap things up on the program because I am conscious that we are beginning to run short of time um we know we don't have a crystal ball, but if we could perhaps look ahead to 12 months from now, in an ideal world that informed solutions, what is it that you're really hoping to have achieved by that point? And indeed, where do you see the business itself being this time in a year, considering the uncertain landscape? Well, um, we've already got an initiative in place to, uh, with, with quite, a, with quite a good team, actually. We've got a lot of volunteers that are helping us shape our new normal. 
So we're revisiting roles and responsibilities. We're revisiting our operating model. We're revisiting the tools that we use for collaboration. Um, we're revisiting really how uh, our staff would find it acceptable to for the for the business to oversee the performances of, of remote working, but not in a way that they feel is, is particularly invasive. So we've actually set up a working group in the company and we've invited not just the leaders, but anybody who feels minded, and we've got a few graduates on there as well, uh, to help shape our own future. So that's in hand. We're, um, we're going to look at uh, until February next year um, to just, just explore, permission to explore. And everyone's quite enjoying that. I mean, clearly within commercial boundaries, it's not, it's not a completely academic exercise. It's got, it's got to be in agreement with clients. Um, and then at that time, we're going to start making some decisions together uh, as to what, um, how do we enshrine that really in new roles and responsibilities and new ways of working on a more sustainable footing so that new people coming into the company really get what we're about, really get how we work, and hopefully it will be for them as well because we, we still have the ambition of growing, um, not at the rate perhaps that we had expected to grow 12 months ago, but it's an onwards and forwards. Uh, I'm a realist, but I'm also a realist about what we, where we are at the moment, but I'm an optimist about where we'll be in the future. Um, the second part of it is we're pivoting our international trade um, and exporting model um, because, um, as I said before, I, I'm not at all worried about saying it's, it's much more challenging. It's uh, nowhere near where we were expecting to be, and we've certainly invested in it, so we need to pivot that that way of working and we're actually being, um, we're part of the um, Department of International Trade Export Academy. Um, so again, we're just going to use the next six months or so to explore what that looks like in terms of strategic alliances and new ways of delivering what we do. Um, and hopefully next year we will have, um, we will have all of the answers to what the future looks like for us and we'll bring along our clients, um, our existing clients. We want to make sure that they feel that we are not neglecting their needs. Um, our staff, and hopefully also we will attract some, some new people to work with because um, part, hopefully as leadership, if you show the way for others, you can inspire them to join your journey as well. Hopefully, Scott, that's where we'll be. And if you speak to me in 12 months, I'll, be, I'll hopefully have a retrospective and say, yep, we ticked most of those boxes. And honestly, Elizabeth, just given the scale of that vision, I actually do think it would be wonderful at some point in this next year to welcome you back onto the programme just to see how that vision is bearing fruit. And I really do hope, as you say there, that there'll be plenty of those boxes ticked by then and there'll be some positive news to uh, to share with our listeners for sure. Well, I think you provide an incredibly uh, valuable forum, really. The, um, the Leaders' Council you know, offers people such an opportunity to share and to learn from each other with, you know, without ego. Um, and, you know, whilst we're always a little bit conscious of, um, you know, what we say and how we say it, there is an honesty to the conversations, which I find very refreshing. And I particularly like the fact, Scott, also that you are embracing the younger leaders. Succession is so important. And, you know, this pandemic is awful. And, you know, the economic impact is awful. But it's also, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to teach the young leaders of the future how they can handle these sorts of crises as well. You know, everything is a learning opportunity that's handled in the right way. So I really do think the Leaders' Council has got such an important role to play in that.
And it's exactly what we're all about. It's all about, of course, getting the authentic voices of British industry out there, not, of course, just so that people are aware of what's going on within various sectors, but also as a forum to be able to learn from each other and understand, particularly during one of the greatest challenges of our time, that we are all very much on an even keel. We can look to other leaders to learn. We can look to plenty of resources to help us develop. And also it's fundamentally about inspiring the next generation because looking at the ongoing economic situation, it would be very easy for a young person especially to be downhearted by what COVID-19 is doing to the economy and doing to their employment prospects and it's important to actually reinvigorate that generation of people to capture their entrepreneurial spirit and look at the situation and realise that after every crisis there is an opportunity out there and there is still plenty of ways that I can pick my head up and really embark on that road to success. I agree with that. And also some of the older hands, the more experienced hands, they need to have the generosity of spirit to help coach and show the way um, to to the younger leaders. Because at the end of the day, once you've been in business as we have, you know, 28 years, we've been through a few recessions, clearly not as deep and as, and, and as, uh, as, as big an impact as this one. But, you know, there are things that we can accelerate young leaders' learning uh, and build that confidence, you know, Tell them it's not all doom and gloom. There is always light at the end of the tunnel. And really, you're going to be so much more better prepared to propel yourself and to take advantage of those opportunities as the market starts opening up. If you have put the groundwork in now, now is the time to put the groundwork in. That's exactly it. And let's hope that we do start to really see that in earnest over the course of the next few months. And as discussed, I think it would be a really thrilling experience, Elizabeth, to welcome you back on and catch up later down the line to see how things are getting along. It's a shame we don't have more time today because it is an issue that we could discuss long into the evening, I'm sure. But I'll thank you again for taking the time to join us on the uh, the programme. It's been such a pleasure having you. And most importantly, until we do get to touch base again, please do take care and stay safe with all that is still going on in the world as well. Thank you so much, Scott. And reciprocally, take care of yourself and stay well. And that also goes for all of the listeners as well that are tuning into this podcast. Um, Do take care of yourselves, stay well, and do also be considerate of others because it does make such a key difference in saving lives, that is for sure. And once again, Elizabeth, thank you ever so much for your time today. Thank you. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Elizabeth Vega OBE onto today's programme. Uh, next up on the show today, we're going to be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett, who enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth. Lord Blunkett held a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of Prime Minister Tony Blair during his premiership and served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. The exploits of his political career saw him elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015 and I do hope that you enjoy listening to this interview just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That will of course be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the 
government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? 
Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 
uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of 
experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape 
that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June, 
this obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, 
confident and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, 
he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.